You're listening to Maintenance Control, where aviation maintenance professionals come to learn about the latest innovations in our industry. This podcast is brought to you by Aviation Maintenance Magazine, the most read MRO publication in the world. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Maintenance Control Podcast. This is Joy Finnegan, Editor-in-Chief of Aviation Maintenance Magazine. Recently, the DOT, Office of the Inspector General, released a report looking at the FAA's oversight of Allegiant Air. The report's objective was to assess the FAA's processes for investigating improper maintenance practices at Allegiant. The OIG assessed FAA's oversight of long-standing maintenance issues impacting the safety at Allegiant Air, and also the process for ensuring that Allegiant Air implemented effective corrective actions to address the root causes of those maintenance problems. The report found that since 2011, maintenance inspectors at the FAA did not consistently document risks associated with 36 Allegiant Air in-flight engine shutdowns for its MD-80 fleet. They also found that FAA did not correctly assess the root cause of maintenance issues. It goes on to say that the reason these did not occur was because inspectors did not follow FAA's inspector guidance that requires them to document changes in the oversight once they've identified those areas of increased risk. Also, the FAA's compliance program and inspector guidance did not include key factors related to carriers' violations of federal regulations. Specifically, inspectors didn't have guidance needed to consider the severity of outcomes when deciding what action to take following a noncompliance. This resulted in the FAA missing opportunities to address maintenance issues and mitigate safety risks in a timely manner, the report says. With me today to talk us through this report is safety expert Jeff Gazzetti. Recently, Jeff retired from an incredible career of public service at the NTSB, the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Transportation, and finally, the FAA. During his 18 years at the NTSB, he served as a field investigator, a go-team airworthiness engineer, and finally, as deputy director. At the Department of Transportation, he was the Assistant Inspector General for Aviation and testified before Congress several times regarding safety audits conducted by that office. In 2014, he became the Director of the FAA's Accident Investigation Division in Washington, D.C., where he remained until his retirement from federal service this past February. Now, in the private sector, Jeff has founded a safety consulting firm called GARD, which stands for Gazetti Aviation Risk Discovery. As president, Jeff advises his clients in the aerospace industry on safety, and his company's mantra is committed to improving aviation safety around the world through education, investigation, and consultation. You can learn more about Guard at www.gazetteaviation.com, and that's spelled G-U-Z-Z-E-T-T-I-A-V-I-A-T-I-O-N.com. So let's jump into the report that was released by the DOT Inspector General. It's entitled, The FAA Needs to Improve Its Oversight to Address Maintenance Issues Impacting Safety at Allegiant Air. 
Jeff, you led the same IG group a few years ago uh, that has put this report out and were even involved in some of the previous work that underpins the findings in this report. Can you discuss the report and walk our audience through some of the background findings? Sure. Uh, I would be happy to, Joy. It's uh, good to be with you. Um, yeah, I was the uh, Assistant Inspector General for Aviation Audits uh, for from 2010 to 2014, and uh, I really became enamored and impressed with uh, the audit work that the DOTIG conducts. The, they follow the standards of the uh, uh, GAO Yellow Book, or the Generally Accepted Government Auditing Standards. Very rigorous. They, they uh, cross-check and reference, very accurate. And this specific team, I had the pleasure of leading. They're in Atlanta, Georgia, and they conduct very in-depth safety audits of FAA programs. It takes about a year to complete these audits, and this is their latest report. And as per usual, it's very well-written, concise, and quite frankly, critical of the FAA. The FAA does have an opportunity to respond. And in fact, you can see their response at the end of the report. But these reports are very standardized uh, and have a flow to them. And this particular report was requested by congressional representatives. Most of the audits that the DOT conducts are specifically requested by members of Congress. And this one, there were several members of Congress that requested this last year or a couple of years ago. And the FAA initiated an audit and went through a very rigorous process to collect evidence and work with FAA. This is their final report. And basically, you read the, the key findings with regards to how the FAA's compliance program, as well as the FAA's safety assurance system that they utilized were not effective in this instance and likely won't be effective in other instances too if the FAA doesn't improve its processes. So it's a very detailed report with regards to the specific examples they use to support their findings and I'd be more than happy to, to uh, go more in depth with you. Okay, great. So let me ask a few questions. After reading the report, there were certain things that jumped out to me. The first one is the report refers to a new oversight system called SAS. So that's Sierra Alpha Sierra. Uh, can you tell us about that system? What does that stand for? It refers to the fact that it was a complicated system to use and that this contributed to the inability of FAA inspectors to utilize it in their oversight of Allegiant. Can you explain a little bit about that system, what made it complicated, and why it was difficult to use? Yes, sure. So the SAS stands for the Safety Assurance System. And it's basically a system that is utilized by FAA safety inspectors, the, 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 the roughly 4,000 aviation safety inspectors that work across 100 different field offices that conduct surveillance, they use this computerized system and this tool to assess the safety of air carriers. Now, SAS is a, it's, it's, it's had a troubled past. The previous system that the FAA used was known as the Air Transportation Oversight System, or ATOS. And FAA decided to upgrade that because ATOS had its issues. 
And in 2010, they planned on uh, creating SaaS, and it was supposed to be rolled out in 2013, but there was a two-year delay, and they finally rolled it out in 2015. And basically, it, it's a system that employs processes, analytical processes focused on identifying hazards and mitigating those hazards within an air carrier, and then validating uh, the controls that an airline would put into place once they have identified their own hazards. So it's a fairly complex system because an airline has a lot of moving parts, right? And you want the FAA to be standardized. And this was a tool that was meant to have all FAA inspectors from all 100 offices be able to use the same tool and standardize its oversight of the airline and improve its consistency and collaboration and to teach its inspectors to determine risk-based data-supported oversight decisions. And it has uh, a lot of sub-components to it, uh, tools that you can use, and you really need to be trained on it. It's, it has many different components, focus areas, it, it has interfaces, process measurement, responsibilities, uh, controls, procedures, authority, all related to how an air carrier needs to conduct its business safely. Great. Okay. And so the report does go on to say, it actually does say that the FAA inspectors in key oversight roles for Legionnaire did not complete required training. So what was the breakdown there? Why didn't the training occur? Well, if you go into the details of the report, it infers that the managers that oversee, the FAA managers that oversee these inspectors weren't aware that their own inspectors that they're assigning to conduct oversight using this SAS system are required to have training before they do it. And so the managers didn't know that their inspectors needed to be trained and therefore no one told the inspectors they had to be trained. And the inspectors didn't know they had to be trained. And uh, so in certain offices, there's no tools available to tickle a manager's memory that, hey, I got to send my inspectors to this safety assurance system tool. Now, and that becomes one of the recommendations that the IG makes to the FAA. But in these instances, that was one of the examples with regards to why these inspectors weren't properly trained. You know, there's a lot, these inspectors are very busy, right? They're very dedicated. They got a, a high workload. And to, to actually have someone help remind them of what kind of training they need and set up the training for them is, is a need that the FAA has. Uh, they need this. And one of the recommendations is to have a training manager set up within a certain office or a region to make sure that the FAA is getting the, the training that they need. Interesting. Okay. So let's move on to one of the results. The report says that one team of FAA inspectors did not focus on the increasing number of in-flight engine shutdowns, and that the reason for that was because they believed other teams were addressing the problems. What other teams would have or should have been addressing these problems, if not those inspectors? And why would the ones that should have been addressing it think that another team was addressing the problems? Well, I just think, Joy, that it's a lack of communication within the FAA. You've got all of these fiefdoms, I guess, for lack of a better term, different groups doing different things. 
and they should be collaborating and communicating with each other often. But they're so involved in their own tasking that they sometimes don't don't communicate to see what's going on. I think in one of the cases here, there was just an assumption that there was this uh, system analysis team that was working the case, and this other systems analysis team thought that the first one was working the same issues that uh, they were assigned. So they just decided to not cover that issue and, and, and do something different. I think just a phone call or a conversation with that other team would have resolved the issue, but they were either too busy or too unaware that, uh, or, or rely too much on their own personal assumptions that that was being done. So they, they didn't do it. Okay. So this report focuses on the airline itself because ultimately they are the ones responsible for the safe operation of their aircraft. However, uh, we do know that Allegiant used an external maintenance provider for a lot of the work. We're not going to talk too much about that, but uh, I do want to know if you can tell me whether there were consequences for that maintenance provider as a result of this report. Yes and no. So as a rule, the DOT inspector general does not, in their audit reports, give the, the specific names of a repair station or a person or something like that. Now, obviously, this if the audit is about a specific airline, in this case, Allegiant, well, then they, they pretty much have to name that. But if they don't have to name the other vendors to that airline or the maintenance providers, they won't. That's kind of a typical government standard. The IG doesn't want to besmirch anyone's reputation if they don't have to, but they will talk about it and just not use the name. And if people want to request the name through the Freedom of Information Act, then they can. So in this particular case, this repair station was in fact discovered to have repetitive problems with their maintenance tasking. And a, an inspection team actually put together a pretty significant enforcement action with civil penalties but in the end, that was right around the compliance program issue or initiation within the FAA in 2015. And so all that work to document those infractions were, were kind of whisked away with the compliance velocity, where a decision was made, hey, let's just, uh, instead of enforcement, let's handle this with our new compliance program and you know, work with, make it a, make it a compliance action, which is non-punitive. Uh, as opposed to a legal enforcement case, with, which is punitive. And so they overturned the original inspector's work for the enforcement action, and that uh, MRO was not, was not punished in that regard. Interesting. I'm going to mention that that came to light again, and in fact it's addressed to a certain degree in this report, and the FAA took another look at it. They formed an independent team and the independent team said, you know what, this really shouldn't have come under the compliance program guidance because the compliance program is really meant for unintentional mistakes, right? That happens once or twice. And then you say, hey, you made this mistake rather than, than fine you for it or penalize you. Let's work together and put together a root cause analysis. Well, in this particular case, this was intentional, egregious, repetitive, issue that really shouldn't have come under that program, but yet it did. And even after this independent FAA review determined that, the FAA still, in the end, didn't create a fine for this repair station. 
Okay. And just for those that don't know, there is a program, you've mentioned it a couple of times, called the Compliance Program, which was designed to identify safety issues and effectively correct them in a timely manner. And this was done as part of a, an overarching process within the FAA to shift from an enforcement-based oversight model to one that stresses a more collaborative approach. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. The thought being that the air carrier or the repair station will be much more willing to share their mistakes with the FAA if they know the FAA is not going to punish or fine them. And so once the FAA becomes aware of these self-reported mistakes, they'll work with the carrier and support their efforts to try to mitigate future errors. And quite frankly, it's to some degree, it's been very successful. It has created a culture of a non-punitive environment where people share information rather than keep it close to the vest. And the only way to attack problems and hazards is to know they exist and to identify them. So from that aspect, it's good. But, you know, it's in the moderation of it. Uh, you should not use it if you've got repetitive, recalcitrant, intentional, unsafe ways of doing business, then you have to, you really need to send a signal by penalizing the carrier. This is the just culture philosophy, isn't it, Jeff? That's correct. Just culture, where, again, you don't punish for unintentional mistakes. Instead, you, you learn about them and you create systems to prevent them. Okay, great. Uh, let's move on and talk a little bit about, in the report, it says it took more than two years to agree on a plan to mitigate these risks, these engine risks. Is that an acceptable amount of time, and why did it take so long? It is not an acceptable amount of time, and the IG infers that in the report. It, it, two years is just way too long. I mean, if you've identified a hazard, the FAA and the air carrier need to work quickly to mitigate those hazards with, with root cause. And two years is just way too long. When I worked at the FAA, we used to say things move at the speed of government. <laughs> and that was a, uh, uh, I guess, kind of a, a lighthearted way of saying the government can be extremely bureaucratic. There's so many people and managers and tasking that trying to work with industry, which is moving much faster and which has a different business model can take a long time. Two years, I think, is very excessive. But unfortunately, with the federal government, it's very difficult to get things to happen more quickly. During the two-year period between 2015 and 2017, the report says that no enforcement actions were taken regarding the problem of the engine shutdowns. Can you address that a little bit? I think you did refer to an enforcement action earlier that was later dropped. So talk a little bit about that and why you think that was the case. Well, I, I think that the FAA wanted to send a signal out to the entire industry, not just Allegiant, to say, you know, we're serious about our new compliance philosophy. And in fact, when it was rolled out, they called it the compliance philosophy. And they changed that to compliance program because they felt it was philosophy just wasn't the right word. But they wanted to send a signal to say, we're a kinder, gentler FAA, and we want you to share your safety data with us and your mistakes. And I think some of the carriers benefited from that uh, sunrising of this new program. 
that may have been an issue, but I will tell you that the IG kind of picked that period of time about no enforcement action. If you look at the FAA's response to that, that's at the end, the very end of the report, it said, and I'm quoting here, that the FAA continued to focus on and engage with Allegiant Air between October 2015 and December 2018. The FAA completed 49 compliance actions related to airworthiness, along with initiating three enforcement actions relating to airworthiness. So the IG might have said, well, you they may have known about these initiated enforcement actions, but because they hadn't been fully resolved yet and the penalty assessed, they didn't count them as an enforcement action. So the FAA did take enforcement action. And in fact, they put out a press release on one of them even after that. There's a press release from June 12, 2019, where one of these enforcement actions was finally provided. It was a $715,000 civil penalty against Allegiant Air. So on page 11, the report says that local inspection offices are left to develop their own method of data compilation and that FAA has not developed a process to incorporate historical compliance action data into its inspection database. Doesn't the FAA have a better method of standardization throughout the FAA, throughout the large bureaucratic organization that it is? It sounds like they are independently owned and operated offices. They're not meant to be. It has been a challenge for the flight standard service within the FAA to provide a lot more consistency and procedures so that one inspector on the West Coast will do things just like an inspector on the East Coast of the US. There is just so many tasks to perform that the FAA is behind the eight ball with regards to developing written processes for all of their inspectors to cover every single situation. And there's a balancing act too. I mean, I think the flight standards is also trying to get, trying to hire inspectors that can think on their feet to be a little interdependent and use their common sense. Even though there's not a written process or procedure, they should still communicate with others, with their peers, with, with FAA headquarters and get some advice on how to handle something. That is one I guess, flaw, or in my personal opinion, a deficiency with how the IG conducts audits, they, they look at written procedures and processes, and they compare with what inspectors are doing with a specific process. And if that process doesn't exist, then they will make mention of that. And I think you see that in here. So I can, <laughs> I can tell you that the FAA will now develop a process to uh, incorporate historical compliance action data into its database. They will, they, I'm sure they appreciate the IG pointing out that issue and the recommendation that they're gonna get and they'll make that change. But there's just the, the sheer volume of tasking that FAA inspectors have to know and do as part of their job. The sheer volume of tasking that an FAA inspector has to know and perform as part of their duties to conduct oversight is massive. And it makes it very challenging, if not impossible, for the FAA mothership to put out specific written procedures for every aspect of those tasks. That makes sense. Um, I, I'm sure it is a, a very complicated and difficult task. Let's move on. And there is a statement in the report on page 12 of the report that refers to an enforcement action and says, had it been upheld. What does that mean? Did the FAA make an enforcement action and then not enforce it? 
Yes. So it takes a long time for the FAA to actually complete an enforcement action all the way down to receiving the fine from the carrier. The inspectors on the ground will build the case and then they there's a whole procedure where they'll work it through, they'll talk to their management, and then their management will go to the regional's legal counsel for an FAA region. And then that will be reviewed by FAA attorneys and at, at headquarters. And it's very difficult to have an ironclad case that goes all the way to completion because the FAA really wants to be fair and wants to know that their enforcement action will not be overturned or fall through the cracks because it's going to go public. So yes, many times an enforcement action is begun, but an attorney or a manager or folks will say, you know what, this just isn't going to stick. There's too much precedent against it or we just we may not have everything we need and so a decision is made to either uh, rescind it or settle with the airline but you don't typically find out about those because until it becomes a civil penalty it doesn't hit the light of day okay the report says that disparate actions by the different faa offices cause the case to be closed without punitive actions so it sounds like the FAA needs to do their own root cause analysis of why that happened. Do you feel like that's been resolved within the FAA? They're trying to resolve it. So they are creating training courses about how to determine root cause analysis. And they have a lot of written procedures on it. It's just a matter of getting the inspectors up to speed on it. They, they have to try to shoehorn in that specific training, that specific process with all the other processes that an inspector needs to know as they become an inspector. But yes, I think the written material is there is, and the courses have been developed. The report also refers to disagreements between FAA offices. Why were there so many offices involved in this particular case? And why would they need to resolve disputes as mentioned in the report? Well, with the way the airline industry operates now, Joyce, you've got different maintenance bases, you've got different operations, pilot bases, things like that. And so you might have one office that holds the certificate, but it may be it may not be located next to the office that does the the maintenance for the airline. And, and not only that, but you have different offices within the FAA. They talk about regional flight standards management. They talk about regional attorneys in the law offices, which is separate than flight standards. So as is typical for any government bureaucracy, you have many different offices under an agency and you need to have good communication and collaboration between all those offices. And then you're going to have people, because of their different perspectives, disagree and these disagreements can sometimes become a bit too much and it can delay things. So again, it just it, it's all part of this uh, bureaucracy and the way the FAA is organized and how they're trying to handle all of the disparate actions that an airline is conducting. The report also says that FAA inspectors did not consider the safety risks that the maintenance providers repeated failure could pose. To me, that seems impossible. I mean, the whole purpose of their inspections was to make sure there was a safe process in place. So how do you think 
that was possible, that they did not consider these safety risks. So I think you might be referring to the severity. In other words, uh, if it's a, a risk that can cause a catastrophic event, uh, that isn't considered. Yes. And that's what, and, and that is what the process says. So, and even in the FAA's response, they address this and they still don't agree. They say, uh, and I'm quoting here on page 27 of the report, that it says the IG's draft report suggests that, quote, the severity of an event should be a key factor in deciding what action to take following an air carrier's violation of the regulations. The FAA disagrees that severity should be a key factor. The compliance program was designed to address underlying behaviors and systems that are the root causes of deviations. Certain behaviors, such as intentionally acting contrary to the regulations or reckless behavior, represents the highest risk of safety, regardless of the severity of a particular violation. So the FAA is basically saying it, it doesn't matter what the final outcome of the, of the risk would have been. Was that risk intentional? Was it uh, egregious? Was it reckless? And uh, if it wasn't, then you should still use the compliance program. And I think that's, uh, this is a very good point to debate. I think that both the IG and the FAA have good arguments here, but I think there can be some compromise with regards to this. I don't know what that is. And if it is, if, if a risk is obviously gonna be catastrophic, you'd have to ask, well, why would not a carrier know that? How could a hole that big appear and should that be handled differently than just saying, oh, they didn't mean to have a hole that big? So uh, I think the IG makes a very good point. And, and I think the FAA's philosophy is a good counter to that. But there's got to be some middle ground, uh, some more practical, uh, another practical solution to handle those types of things. Right. Compromise is always the way, right? Exactly. All right, let's talk a little bit about the VDRP. This is the Voluntary Disclosure Reporting Program. It's supposed to allow self-disclosure of errors. We talked about this a little bit to the FAA, but it also requires a root cause analysis. It needs to have fixes to the problems and validations that the fixes have been implemented. So in this case, where do you feel this process broke down? I think it broke down, Joy, because the root cause analysis and the follow through was not completed by the airline. And the FAA still uh, closed out the VDRP. So the FAA kind of fell down on the job with regards to this. And, you know, in fact, I uh, was part of an audit that the same team did back in 2013 on VDRP, in which the VDRP program had these same issues that there wasn't enough follow-through by inspectors once a carrier would voluntarily disclose something and a root cause was, uh, was determined. You have to see whether that root cause fixes the problem. And in this case, they just, the inspectors moved on and perhaps because it was workload, perhaps because they didn't know any better and weren't properly trained or mentored, I don't know. But again, because You've got 4,000 inspectors. It's tough to get them all marching to the same tune in a timely manner with all good training. Right. So that goes back to the standardization process that maybe the uh, FAA needs to work on. Let's also talk just a little bit, kind of wrapping up here. Allegiant retired their DC-9s and their MD-80 fleet in 2018. So 
None of those aircraft are flying anymore for Allegiant. And most, if not all of the issues that are addressed in this report, I should say, uh, were related to those two aging aircraft. So that being the case, is any of this still relevant in terms of Allegiant's responsibility? I think it's relevant, Joy. Just because uh, you had an older model airplane with older engines on it doesn't mean that it's okay to have all of these engine problems and in-flight shutdowns and exhaust gas temperature exceedances. As long as an older airplane is maintained, then it should be just fine. Now, it might require more intensive labor to keep an older airplane in good shape, but if an airline's going to fly those older airplanes, they need to do what they need to do to not have all of these problems with those engines. I, I don't think that's a good enough excuse to say, hey, we got a bunch of old airplanes. You won't mind if we have a lot of maintenance issues and engine problems with them. It's a, it's a business model that the airline's going to have to change if they can't deal with flying older airplanes. So I don't think it's relevant, quite frankly. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things that jumped out in the report to me was the missing cotter pin issue. That could happen on any aircraft. I mean, m most aircraft have cotter pins. And so it doesn't really matter how old that aircraft is. So if your maintenance provider fails to install a cotter pin in a safety related uh, situation, that would be a problem. Regardless of that, yeah, there are issues that still need to be addressed. I think you're absolutely right. No, I was just going to say in that specific incident, that is, uh, I, I agree with you. That was a, that was a big problem because that airplane continued to fly even after the cotter pin wasn't installed. You know, the the uh, the inspection after that didn't catch it, and then it continued to to fly, and and it turns out there were other issues, similar issues with that repair station. So that's a big problem. The report does say Allegiant operated the aircraft for almost two months on 216 flights without that cotter pin. So uh, yeah, that is a big concern. Right. All right, well, very good. Thank you so much for walking us through this report, Jeff. It's fascinating. I think there's a lot to be learned from the report itself, both on the operational side and for the FAA. So I think everyone can benefit from you know, reading the report and seeing exactly what occurred, when it occurred, and different areas in which both the FAA and the airline and their maintenance provider can improve. Uh, I would agree. And, you know, the, this is an evolving program, the compliance program. As the industry evolves, uh, an effective and consistent oversight of aircraft maintenance has got to always continue to be a critical element of maintaining safety. So I guess we all have to work on this together, industry as well as FAA, and you can only continue to strive for improvements. Absolutely. I do want to let everyone know that you and I, Jeff, will be starting a new podcast series called The Safety Wire. We're going to take a look back at accidents over the years that have had a primary cause or contributing factor related to maintenance. These cases provide cautionary tales that we can all learn from. In each case, we will take a look at the series of events that led to the accident. Jeff's going to be helping guide us through these accident investigations in this new podcast series. For the first in the series, we will discuss the article that Jeff wrote about the Chalks Ocean Airways accident that appeared in our November issue. You can find that on page 36 of Aviation Maintenance Magazine in the November issue and also on our website 
at www.avm-mag.com. And that piece is called Cracks in the System. We look forward to learning more from you, Jeff, as we go forward. Thanks, Joy. I look forward to uh, participating in this, uh, in this series. Thanks for listening to the Maintenance Control Podcast, a production of Aviation Maintenance Magazine, the most read MRO publication in the world. Subscribe at www.avm-mag.com.